Hey, software engineers. Today is Tuesday, June 4th, 2019. I'm attorney Michael Rice, and you're listening to Law for Software Engineers. Thanks for downloading and listening to Law for Software Engineers. This is episode number two. This is our first week. I'm sure we'll get better. So if you are listening to this for the first time, maybe try another one later once we get rolling. And despite its boring title, this is supposed to be a relaxed and informative podcast about how law intersects with software engineering, sometimes with disastrous results, but mostly I just want to remove some of the fear, uncertainty, and doubt, otherwise known as FUD. Since I mentioned my limited legal practice sometimes on this podcast, I should tell you this podcast might qualify as attorney advertising in California where I'm based, but I don't think it's going to sound much like an advertisement to you. If it does, you know where the unsubscribe button is. My name is Michael Rice. I've been a software engineer for about 20 years, having been a programmer, tech lead, and manager at a lot of name brand tech companies. Along the way, I took a break and went to law school in Seattle. Some people take a break and travel to Asia. I went to law school. And I actually loved it. Today, I still mostly write code for a living, but I'm also still fascinated by law and want to keep engaged in the community. And no, I can't think of a better name for the podcast than Law for Software Engineers. If you can, let me know. In today's episode, we're going to cover a little news, specifically how the regulators are pounding big tech companies here in the United States and what it might mean for developers. We'll cover our legal topic of the day, which is intellectual property. And we'll talk about a quick little case that I think you'll find interesting about a web developer. So let's get started. All right, first for the news, let's cover some news at the intersection of law and software engineering or the industry generally. Um, First is a little news announcement from Apple's WWDC, the developer conference 2019 going on right now. Um, Apple has revised its um, guidelines, application developer or the App Store guidelines, section 1.3 to no longer allow uh, third party uh, analytics or tracking applications in apps today. So um, if you're an app developer for kids, I very much appreciate you letting me be a lazy parent from time to time. Um, And I I appreciate how useful sometimes those third party analytics tools can be. Um, especially when you get the pretty graphs and the analytics. But um, I think uh, I think the days for that are coming to an end. Apple's very concerned about privacy. I mentioned in yesterday's podcast that could be coming. Another interesting couple of big news topics that might be interesting for developers but might not be in the short term is one, the Justice Department has been, um, here in the United States, has been, um, I guess, having negotiations or debates. I'm not sure how those conversations go with the uh, FTC, the Federal Trade Commission about who gets to investigate Google. And that was big news on Monday, yesterday. And the, the idea here is that the regulators have been investigating Google quite a bit. They, they went through a pretty intensive review in 2013. They, Google largely got a pass on um, some antitrust concerns. And I th- I'm not sure exactly what the issues were in 2013 or 2012, maybe when they started. But um, Google largely got a pass on any kind of heavy enforcement action, I think largely because they made some voluntary changes to their business practice. I'd have to go back and look and see what all that was. Um, Today, they are about to reopen a new investigation, um, probably having to do with privacy cases, uh, privacy um, issues again. um, Likely, I mean, the search engine really has a pretty strong monopolistic power in terms of search and probably advertising. 
So there's probably a pretty wide ranging um, inquiry into Google's practices. So um, similar news came out on Friday that the FTC will be investigating Facebook. So these are, you know, if you've heard of Fang, uh, it's uh, what is it? Facebook, Apple, Netflix, I think, and Google. Those are the big four tech companies. So two of them are under heavy investigation now or will be under pretty heavy investigation. Apple has its own issues to deal with that we talked about yesterday. So not sure exactly what the outcome will be for software developers, but anytime there are changes that come about because of this, it's going to create some new opportunities. So I don't know. Keep your ear to the ground. You might find some new, uh, some new things to consider. Um, I think for most of us as smaller software developers, we can only dream of having the kind of monopolistic power that Google has. But um, I don't know, maybe it's a cautionary tale for, for the next Google that, or the next Apple or the next Facebook. And they say there aren't really antitrust concerns because in 10 or 15 years, those companies will all be gone anyway. And at least that's the argument. So stay tuned. It's going to be an, an interesting ride. Oh, and by the way, if you're wondering why your stock portfolio is down, the NASDAQ just entered correction territory today. Um, down about 10% on the year because of um, these investigations. So lots of things moving big needles. All right, let's turn to our substantive topic. In this segment, I like to try to, or want to try to educate you on some legal concepts. On Mondays, we'll talk about privacy, data breach, and cybersecurity topics. Tuesdays, we'll get into intellectual property and licensing issues. That's today. On Wednesday, we'll talk about the brave new world of blockchain and how it quickly gets enmeshed in legal issues. On Thursday, we'll get into employment law issues for software engineers, and then we'll get into some criminal issues on Friday, which is always fairly entertaining, at least for us, not for the not for the uh, defendants. So remember, none of this is legal advice. I don't even know who you are, so I can't possibly be, be your lawyer. Now, in today's episode, let's just go do kind of a high level. I'm thinking some of these things will go very high level and some will go very low level. Today, we'll just loosely talk about in what intellectual property is, or IP. In our, in our new world of open source as developers, where almost everything a developer needs is pretty much free, it seems like things like copyright, trademarks, patents, and so on are kind of anachronistic or, uh, or against the developer ethos or, or even like, uh, I don't know, some kind of artifacts from, from some legacy legal framework. But... Um, Intellectual property is actually something you should know about. It's um, it's what really enables things to be free uh, On is one thing to think about. I mean, it's actually through copyright license grants that we can create the requirements that code stay open source. If it were just in the public domain, we really lose that capability. And also, for example, being able to license the use of software is what enables us to create apps and software as a service or SaaS apps and monetize them, or at least it's, it's one facet of what enables us to do that. So one way to think of intellectual property is not about your rights or any one property right, but actually more of a bundle of sticks. That was the way it was explained to me in law school. Some sticks are going to be smaller in size or different or shaped a little differently. Um, They're all a little unique and all the rights could be used for different things, but they're all rooted in the idea that you have specific rights in what you create. You can see this all over the internet, but just something to point out in your ear right now, there are four major sources of intellectual property rights. There are copyright and trademark and patent law, and um, these are pretty much all federal law. 
And then we'll talk a little bit about uh, trade secret, which is state law. Um, but first, generally, copyright covers works of authorship. And authors are basically automatically get a collection of rights when you fix your work into some kind of tangible medium. As a software engineer, you have rights, which you probably already assigned away to your employer, in the software you write, for example. Copyright, like patent and trademark, is a federal law issue for the U.S. Congress to address. It's actually spelled out in the U.S. Constitution. Um, unlike some of the more obscure congressional powers like the Dormant Commerce Clause, which hopefully we will never talk about on this podcast, but it's pretty interesting. Um, there's a lot of nuance to copyright law, but generally the idea that y- the idea is that you get an exclusive right for 70 years to, one, reproduce, two, create derivative works, three, distribute the work, four, perform, publicly perform the work, um, five, publicly display the work, and six, digitally transmit sound recordings. There's, there's more nuance on, on each of those, but that's kind of the broad strokes. Um, patent law, however, is very different in that you don't get automatic patent protection. In copyright law, generally you prevent people from copying something you authored. In patent law, you get the right to exclude others from using an invention or something you've come up with, even if you haven't built it yet no matter what the form. Well, I mean, there's actually a lot of <laughs> patentable subject matter is a big, big topic. So, but the, the idea is, um, you don't have to have fixed it into some kind of tangible medium first, like in copyright patents, especially in software are clearly a pretty hot topic. I actually did some work while I was in law school, learning how to prosecute software patents. And it's a pretty complex subject. And, um, it, it takes quite a, quite a bit of effort to get a patent. Um, and the idea was that we wanted to incentivize inventors to disclose their inventions. To do so in return, um, even the framers of the Constitution were thinking this, we would give them an ex- give you the inventors an exclusive right in their invention for the period for a period of time, kind of as a uh, quid pro quo for open sourcing it. Um, that's a pretty I think that's a pretty innovative idea for a few hundred years ago, but I mean, of course, now you can see as a software engineer that a lot of the innovations you can find just by opening up GitHub, right? You don't need to go searching the patent archives, and you probably never did go searching it anyway. Um, Trademark, actually, excuse me, if you did go searching, you'd probably struggle to understand a lot of what you read anyhow. So so it's, um, I don't know, it's... uh, definitely an open debate as to whether this is a valuable thing or not. Maybe it's less so with software and more so with other things like um, pharmaceuticals. I don't know. Definitely a subject, you know, for a, for a, a long discussion. Um, trademark is also important. We won't go into it a lot of, in a lot of detail here, but it's probably very useful even for open source projects, right? Um, a lot of them are very highly branded. There's logos, there's kind of terminology. Um, there's a lot of value as a, uh, as a consumer of those things and knowing that some of the code comes from, say, the React community. And you kind of rely on the branding that React puts on it. And if someone wanted to create a competitor to React, to React and use that React branding to obtain some of the, that goodwill, Facebook could move to stop that developer or that person from using it under federal trademark law, probably in most instances. Um, trade secret law is possibly an area you might be interested in if you have a specific method for creating software or offering your online service that is super unique and takes and you, you know takes some pretty specific efforts to make it secret. Um, the way that Coca-Cola makes Coke is a classic example of trade secret, but if, say, Amazon has some kind of secret way that they keep AWS up and running, that could probably be protected as well. Trade secret law comes from state law, so each state has its own 
implementation, um, but most states are pretty similar because they adopted the Uniform Trade Secrets Act, the UTSA. Um, sometimes states do that when they want to be consistent or promote commerce across state lines. There are a few notable ex um, exceptions to that rule. So those are the big four, patents, copyright, trademarks, and trade secrets. Just super high-level overview to keep it light today. Um, let me know if this is useful. Um, if you thought it was confusing or you have a specific topic you'd like to cover in a future podcast, just remember I can't answer legal questions one-on-one -on -one with you unless you're actually a client, so don't get frustrated if I can't, okay? But I do want to hear from you all, and I want to, I want to know if this is helpful or not, okay? All right, now in this section, I want to, or in this segment, I want to dig out some case on any topic involving software engineers and the law. It could be anything from immigration to probate, and it could be from decades ago or from last week, but usually it's going to come from here in the United States of America, but it could be anywhere if I can understand it and find it interesting for you, or, you, or I think you'll find it interesting. So today I want to tell you about a software development contract dispute between Mr. Fernandez and Mr. Abatayo. I think that's the right way to say it. Fernandez is a, an was an optometrist, or is still one, who wanted to create a website way back in 2011. I guess maybe to create some kind of custom glasses, maybe, or maybe it was an e-commerce site. wasn't really clear from the case I read. But anyway, he did hire Abatayo to create it. And they started working on it on June, around June 20th, 2011. And the web developer was getting paid $439 per week to work on it. Um, he did promise that the site would be operational and active. He expressly promised that. And then later, a few months later on October 29th, they further agreed that the $439 would be deducted from a future share of the revenues from the site. Or I guess he was going to get 10% of the revenues and the 439 would be a draw against those. Um, I'm not sure why they changed the agreement, but maybe it was um, uh, maybe to put a little more skin in the game from the developer. I'm not sure. Um, then they entered another agreement where the optometrist, optometrist would give the developer, he promised to give him a $10,000 advance if the site was online and operational by February 2012, so about eight months after they started. But the site still wasn't done at that time, and so the optometrist stopped paying him, hired another web developer for $24,000, and flipped around and sued Mr. Abatayo for a breach of contract, and I guess other claims. The trial court in New York agreed that Mr. Abatayo breached his contract, um, you know, I guess ostensibly because the, the website was never launched. Um, and the optometrist got a judgment against the web developer for $56,586.97. So this means that the judgment says he's got to pay that, and I think there were probably other costs as well, but that was the base amount. So Mr. Abatayo, the web developer, however, appealed, and he actually got the judgment reversed. So the appeals court said um, the party's agreement only said that the work that he would work on the website, which he did. And two, at trial, the plaintiff didn't prove that the website wasn't done within a reasonable amount of time, even though he did promise to get it done. So you're probably saying to yourself, but he promised to get a working website, didn't he? But there was no deadline actually specified in the contract. And at the trial level, they never established that it was an unreasonable amount of time to develop the website because we're looking at, what, about eight months? So they could have got a finding from the trial judge that said, yep, that was 
that was an implied or some kind of, you know, there's, there's reasonableness always implied in a contract. And, you know, maybe it was unreasonable to take more than eight months. I mean, I don't know. I wasn't there. Right. Um, but they never, the trial court never reached that point. And so that was the ground, one of the grounds by which the appeal appellate court reversed the judgment. So there you go. Good for our web developer, Mr. Abitayo, who beat the judgment. But then again, I wonder how much he had to pay his lawyer to beat it, <laughs> but, but he won. All right, so we covered some ground today, a little um, about the uh, FANG um, antitrust woes and uh, regulator investigations, and that's weighing on the NASDAQ, as well as some updates on Apple's guides, gui- or App Store guidelines for kids' apps. Um, we also talked at a very high level about intellectual property law and kind of the four big ones. There are always more, there's always more to explore in that area. Um, and then third, we, uh, we got into a contract dispute between Mr. Fernandez and Mr. Abatayo, the web developer um, project that went disastrously wrong. So hope you found it interesting, software engineers. And don't remember, don't let the legal FUD slow your roll. Be cautious, but remember, there's always a way to get things done. Find a lawyer who can help you on a reasonable basis. There are lots of wonderful ones out there. And of course, if you're in California, you are welcome to reach out to me. Of course, when I say that, that means that this podcast gets doomed to be attorney advertising, but I hope that didn't sound, come across too salesy. Uh, stay focused on your craft software engineers. Oh, and make sure you subscribe to this podcast, sign up to get my weekly updates via email, and give us an awesome rating so we can reach more people. And go build something on software engineers. You're the ones changing the world these days, so keep doing it. <laughs>